Welcome back to the Relationship Road Trip, navigating the twists and turns of all the important relationships in your life. I'm Ben Azevedo, your backseat driver, and your fifth wheel, baby. I'm Dr. Don Fernando Azevedo, clinical psychologist, executive coach, and voiceover artist, your navigator. And I'm Kim Azevedo, licensed marriage and family therapy associate, your mechanic. Welcome to the show, dearest listener. How many attitudes do you bring to your marriage? And are they good or bad? <laughs> Today's quote is by Laram Salmonson. At your absolute best, you still won't be good enough for the wrong person. At your worst, you'll still be worth it to the right person. Last week, we did our deep dive into CBT, that's cognitive behavioral therapy, if y'all forgot. This week, we're going to discuss some things Dr. Azevedo has noticed over his long and illustrious career. If you're ready to start really working on your primary relationship, this is the episode for you. Don has noted five attitudes that help couples be successful in therapy and begin to develop long-lasting change. Well, what are these five attitudes and why are they so important? Let's start with what an attitude is. Me. I am the attitude. Kim is the attitude. She brings attitude to everything. Whether or not the attitude is successful or not is a different question. So an attitude is a settled way of thinking or feeling about someone or something. Typically, one that is reflected in a person's behavior. I'd like for everyone to note how this relates to cognitive behavioral therapy, right? So these are thoughts and feelings that have settled down and actually become almost pre-conscious approaches to different individuals. So when you see someone that you have a long-standing relationship with, there are attitudes that come to the table when you see them. So think about what it's like when you see your favorite relative. And this is different than a belief. So a belief is a rarefied thought. So it's a thought that's no longer questioned. And a belief, when it gets even more cemented, becomes a prejudice. Okay. So think about those in terms of like sedimentary rock. Yeah. Thoughts are things that we evaluate and we look for data and we you know manage because they, they are part of our conscious approach to the world. Beliefs are things that we've said, I've settled that dispute, this is what it is, and now it's part of my habit strength. I think that's why the question came up for me because of the definition of a settled way of thinking or feeling about something. I thought that seems similar to how I would define a belief, but I, I think there are some differences here. There are and they're not. This is the, so an attitude is something that influences behavior. And mm -hmm. if you think about when you approach somebody that you really, really like, you have an attitude there. And that attitude creates either um, a lot of grace for interactions, so the person cannot call you back over a couple of days and it doesn't really bother you. Whereas somebody that you've just met and they don't call you back, um, you might be more angry with because of the attitude that you bring to the relationship. So okay. in my way of thinking and shaping these things, the way I understand belief is much more of a cognitive aspect and attitude comes across as more action oriented. Not quite. So think about what comprises an attitude. It's a thought and a belief that is now pre-conscious. I don't look for data about it. So think about where it goes in the brain. If something you're actively learning and thinking about, it's going to be in the prefrontal cortex. 
something that is pretty habitual that you know how to do, that moves a little bit farther down and you use less of your brain to actually accomplish it. Things that you do often become habits and habits are at the lowest part of your brain, at the basal part of your brain. Because we couldn't do all of the things we do unless we automated a whole lot of behaviors. So think about how complicated even speaking is. All of the muscles you have to control, the breath control, your vocal cords, your lips, your tongue, your mouth. I think I forgot how to do it. (laughs) (laughs) It's an amazingly complex thing. So a lot, all of that stuff is, is way down in our habit strength, which is lower down in our brain. So we don't think about that. We don't actually figure out what phoneme needs to be created and where our tongue needs to be in our mouth to create that sound to make that word. Does that make sense? Okay, but yeah, but how can we separate what the difference between a belief and an attitude is? So let me come back to that. Think about blending spices. If you have two major spices in your life, thoughts and feelings, an attitude is the blend of those two that generates behaviors. Cool. Yeah. So if I see one of you or Janice or anyone else that I love, a whole set of behaviors pop up. I want to go and hug you. I want to reach out to you. I want to talk to you, that kind of stuff. If I see a stranger, none of those behaviors come to the fore with me. So I have an attitude towards y'all that I love that's different than my attitude towards strangers. Not that I wouldn't greet a stranger and welcome them in, but it's a different attitude, so a different set of behaviors present themselves to me. Does that make sense? Yep. And because it's pre-conscious, we're actually not processing any of this. It just happens. Right. That's the settled part. Right. And this is what makes it dangerous in a relationship. So let's go back to the quote that we had before, right? Um, This is brilliant because if the attitude of your partner is that you can't get anything right, then even at your absolute best, you still won't be good enough for the wrong person because the attitude prevents any of your behaviors from getting through. The flip side of that is at your worst, you'll still be worth it to the right person because the attitude they bring is... I can take you, warts and all. Okay. So actually, that kind of answered the first, the, the second half of the first question first. That's why the attitudes are important. What are the five famous attitudes? The famous ones, all right? Well, to list them all out, willingness, priority time, positive intent, goodwill, and grace. <laughs> Will and grace. These five attitudes are important because they create an environment that establishes safety in the relationship. The behaviors that these five attitudes bring when you can get them rolling, when you see the person, is an idea of gentle curiosity. I want to understand your point of view. Your point of view is important to me. So I already begin with this open attitude of wanting to listen, wanting to understand. Yeah, I would say just looking at this list, there's... They're all different, but there's a lot of overlap, I feel, in the behaviors that I would guess stem from these attitudes. Yes. As a matter of fact, that's true. And the attitudes support one another. So, you know, maybe we ought to go ahead and break this down. Break it down. All right. Let's start at the top. Willingness. There are four parts to willingness in a relationship. We're really looking at how to be happy and successful (laughs) and to start. You need to be willing to be in your relationship. 
That sounds so simple, but a lot of people miss that concept. You have to really want to be with your partner. Some people, after years of marriage or years of being together in general, have kind of lost that interest. And they're kind of like, meh, we live together. It's just kind of what it is now. They're not willing. They're not interested. It's not become an action in their life. It's not the attitude that they're holding. So that's part one. Part two is a willingness to examine your behavior and the effect of your behavior on your partner, regardless of the intent. So Dr. Osvito's favorite words, personal responsibility. This is owning up to your behaviors in the relationship and how your partner's responding to them, regardless of what you meant when you did the thing. And that's so important because it's really easy to say, oh, you're too sensitive or you took it wrong. So it's your fault that you didn't understand me. And that prevents a relationship from moving forward. But when you accept that the way I delivered this didn't get what I wanted and I can do something to get what I want, which is being understood or connecting to my partner. When you do that, you can move forward. But when you shove it on your partner and say, oh, you're too sensitive and you misunderstood and it's your problem, I now have no ability to affect that. All I've done is blame you. And now it just falls on the floor dead. Hmm. Like your relationship. (laughs) So one of the things that happens when you don't examine the effect of your own behavior and you feel really defensive is that you'll engage in what has been coined as dexifying Defending, explaining, and justifying your behavior. Oh, yeah. We've talked about this before. Yeah, You've heard this all of your life. Well, we've also talked about it on the podcast. No, no, I don't think I've heard this term. But we did talk about it on the podcast. And I remember thinking, oh, I didn't know that one. Anyway, defending, explaining, and what? Defending, explaining, and justifying. All of those behaviors are ineffective in moving the situation forward. I get that you didn't intend to harm anybody. That actually doesn't matter. What matters is the effect that you had and going, okay, wait a second. I've been misunderstood. I get it. I didn't explain that very well. Can I start again? No. If that's what you get, then we're blocked, right? And maybe you need to take a time out and come back. (laughs) That's one of the later attitudes, I would guess. Perhaps grace or positive intent. Well, and it's also willingness on both parties. So that's when the other party needs to be willing to be in this relationship and to be present with the other person. The third area of willingness is being comfortable to gently, well, I guess you don't have to be comfortable. You're you're supposed to be willing. It's nice to be comfortable. (laughs) You don't have to be comfortable. In fact, you shouldn't be comfortable. You just need to be willing. You need to be willing to be uncomfortable to voice what's true for you. Well, sometimes it's uncomfortable even if you're in a safe space. So even if your partner has vocalized to you that this is a safe space, please come forward, talk about what's going on for you. Sometimes either you're unwilling to do it or you inherently don't feel comfortable because of past experiences on your own. Or because of your own judgment of yourself. That too. Mm. We haven't even gotten to what you're supposed to be coming forward with, which is your experiences and what's true for you. So being willing to come to your partner to voice what's true for you, what you were intending in a communication, what you're needing in the relationship, any which truth that comes at the end of it. The fourth area of willingness is to listen to your partner's expression of what's true for them when you behave in a particular way. So, Ben, when you said no, fourth area of willingness, dude. Ah, 
That's right. Nice. I hadn't gotten there yet in my learning. And this is this is part of showing up. It's very hard to hear from someone you love that the way that you did something affected them badly. That's hard to hear. And that's why dexifying occurs, right? I don't want you to be hurt. So let me defend what I said or did and or explain it or justify it because I don't want you to be hurt. The ability to tolerate your partner's distress is important because their distress actually belongs to them. And to be present with it gives them courage and strength to handle their own negative emotions. And the only person that can handle their emotions is themselves. No one else can handle my emotions. Only I can do that. It's lovely if I have support. It's delightful if I have someone who's willing to, to journey with me through my emotions. But it's my job to handle my emotions. Think about it. There's a lot of things that are your job, right? No one else can empty your bladder, at least not without a catheter, and that's not particularly comfortable. Wow, he jumped straight to that. <laughs> I was not ready. I feel like there were at least 20 examples before that that would have been less grotesque. <laughs> but would they have gotten your attention? <laughs> no, that's fair. I'm, I'm willing to move on to the next attitude. Thank you for vocalizing your truth, Ben. Our next attitude is priority time, which is something that we three right now are doing. We're spending priority time with each other. Yay! This is one of those things that, again, you would think that couples would want to do this, that this is something natural to them, which is spending time with each other. According to marital therapy as its general existence, surprise, not all couples want to spend time with each other. Take time to spend time with each other. Create that. Make it a dedicated thing to nurture your relationship and be present for each other, right? So this isn't sitting on your phone while your partner watches a show and you're like, oh, yeah, babe, sure, whatever, right? That, that's not priority time. That's not quality time. That's not really time together even in the slightest. What we're looking at here is going on a date with each other. And I can hear someone being like, well, we're married. We don't need to date. Yeah, you do. Date your spouse. It's important. This reminds me of, I think, when we were talking about the love languages. And it really is the idea of you can be physically in the room together or emotionally in the room together. And if you're interacting, playing, laughing, joking, talking about things, all of that is emotional connection. And that's what really quality time is about. Now, you don't have to speak to have quality time. I remember times when you guys were very little that you guys would be down for a nap or you would be watching a movie and mom and I would be out in the yard working and we could work side by side silently. And that was some of the best time that we had because part of the interaction was we knew what the other person needed and we could flow together to accomplish tasks. That was a lot of fun back when I liked gardening. <laughs> I thought he was going to say back when I liked mama. <laughs> <laughs> nah, I still like mama. I still like mama. That's good to know. When I see her, I want to hug her. You know, it's that kind of thing. I have an attitude about that. I also want to note that love in the time of COVID, where we can't necessarily oh. be with our romantic partner or with someone that we care about, quality time and being present with someone can still be done. It's not quite as fulfilling for many people through Zoom or a video chat or something like that. But that is still creating that dedicated time to be spent together. We've talked about him a lot on the show already, but Dr. Gottman has made statements that as little as 15 minutes a day can actually make a huge difference 
in your relationship of just spending time with each other, just being there. And maybe when you first start doing this, it feels a little weird because you haven't done it in a minute. But 15 minutes later, it'll feel real comfortable. No, the more times you do it, the easier it becomes. And then over time, it may take less and less time to fulfill each other. That doesn't necessarily mean you should spend less time together. It just means that it's easier to get into that flow. I would think in theory, you would want to spend more time together the more you did this because you'd be growing closer and enjoying your time. And typically, if a thing is enjoyable, a human will want to do it more. You've got it. You nailed it right on the head. I couldn't. I don't know anything. (laughs) But you did. I'm no expert. No, you learned a thing. Yes. The other part is it doesn't have to be 15 minutes contiguously, right? Like a 15-minute block. It can be small things. Like before you leave the house, go find your partner and give them a hug and say, hey, honey, I'm leaving and I'll be back at whatever time. Just that little point of connection. That, that takes less than a minute. But that's an act of love and caring and honor and respect. It's not that they control when you come and go. It's about honoring and respecting the commitment you have between you. And we've talked about that before with rituals of connection, which, again, is a Dr. Gottman thing. Yes. Cool. Absolutely true. And just to be clear, Virginia Satir talked about that in the 60s, long before Gottman was doing any of that. But not to put any shade on Gottman. I was talking about a specific tool. Yeah. I'm positive that it's time to talk about positive intent. We spent enough time with priority time. So positive intent is the next attitude. We're on number three now for those of us who have lost count. So the idea behind positive intent is that every thought, action, and word that you engage in with your partner or really with any other person that you care about is meant to uplift them. Even when you complain, it's based on, hey, you're having an effect on me and I want to confide that you may not have known that when you do this, this is what happens for me. And so now you know and you get to choose something different if you want. (laughs) You know, when I do this, I feel like people just accuse me of being too earnest. So what's the problem with being earnest? I don't know, but the world seems to think it's bad. (laughs) Do you know why people think it's bad? Because they're jaded. Yes, and because it is too real in a relationship. It's yeah. too vulnerable in a relationship. And, and all of us would prefer to throw slings and arrows at one another. We would rather cuss people out. We would rather find their faults than in honest communication seek solutions. Gentle listeners, we record our podcast, so you're listening to it a few weeks after we've actually recorded it. This week that we're recording is actually the week of the first presidential debate. And I had at least six couples call me in distress because they were fighting over how how the treatment happened in the debate. The level of disrespect and disregard and venom expressed was outlandish. And of course, this created a split. It was also toxic because witnessing this created that divide within the couple. Right. And that was, oh man, I ran into that too. It was, it was amazing to me just how bad it was. That's interesting. Sarah and I, you know, try to keep up with politics. She more than I do, but neither of us watched 
the actual debate? Because I think we both at some level knew that even though we're on the same side of things, it was just going to be such a negative experience that even if you have a partner that you're totally on the same page politically, like this is not a thing that you're arguing about. It's just going to give you, like you said, Kim, toxic vibes. Like you're like, we would have argued about it anyway, because we would have been so mad just from seeing all that negativity on screen, regardless of our personal politics. That is exactly what happened to one of my couples who came in and I had to be like, y'all, you're on the same side. You do realize that. Right. Like you're you're having a fight that they were just so angry that they couldn't even see that they were agreeing. (laughs) And I think that's, I mean, there's a lot, there's a lot that's sad about that, but this has been a really long week. I didn't even realize it was still the same week as the debate. And I want to call out kudos to one group of people around the debate. The people who are doing the closed captioning, that was an amazing task, and they kept up with the banter back and forth, you know, with the over-talking. They kept up with most of that, and wow. that was an amazing thing. That is impressive. So we were talking about what were you, prior, nope, priority time. Positive intent. Po- positive, positive intent. intent. <laughs> Which is approaching your partner with a way that uplifts them and nurtures them and makes them sure. into a proton. Well, you said even when you are critiquing them or trying or having a conflict, how do you do that in an uplifting way? It's it's about sharing with your partner, hey, this is a behavior you're engaging in, or this is a thing that's happening to us, or I was just looking at our finances and we need to do something differently if we're going to attain the goals that we have. And our behavior hasn't been matching up with that. And this is where some of uh, stuff we've talked about previously, like, uh, what is it? I first language, Yep. the effect that it's had on you followed by what your hope is for the relationship or for the behavior, yes. that kind of thing. Yes. Mm-hmm. So that stuff comes into play with sure. positive and intent. It, yeah. And you don't, you're not blaming, right? So even if I say to you, our goal was to save this much money. And I notice on our credit card, there are, you know, six new pairs of shoes. How does this behavior line up with our goal of trying to save more money? Yeah. So that's one of the ways to come and complain in with positive intent. I'm telling you the effect you have on me. You still get to choose what behavior you want to engage in. I'm not blaming you, but I am saying that the way that you're saying or doing whatever you're doing doesn't have a positive effect on me. That's sort of a fine line, huh? It's a very fine line. That's just blaming, but like in a nice way. <laughs> kind of, yeah. It's blaming with positive intent cuz you you're saying I'm not blaming you, but the thing you're doing is making me mad. Well, like you are blaming me for that, but you're doing it very nicely. Well, maybe if we shift this. So, I understand your behavior. I understand maybe why you do this and your behavior is harming me. But I would only say that if I actually understood the behavior. And if I don't understand the behavior, I'm not going to go to the person and say, well, I see why you did this, but I don't be like willing it. to ask them. Yeah, that's that's true. That's what I would do. Or be willing to hold up. We had this goal and this behavior doesn't seem to line up with this goal. But they might come back to you and say, the reason I bought those six pair of shoes is because I got this gift certificate for a thousand bucks. I want a gift certificate for a thousand bucks. I'm like, well, then why is it on our credit card statement? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you lying to me about this gift certificate? Positive uh, intent, Ben. That is not where, positive intent, boy. Where did all those shoes come from? I think you need to return those shoes. See, and that would not be positive intent either, telling someone what to do. You know what else that isn't? 
is uh, goodwill, which is the next attitude. Goodwill. This is the thing you're supposed to have during Christmas time when you're singing songs. Only at Christmas. You're not allowed to have goodwill any other time. Only the holiday season. Got it. That's it. Goodwill is choosing to look at your partner's behavior in the best possible light. So this buying of shoes, maybe if you're just looking at the credit card statement and you just see six shoes bought, you're like, what the heck? And then your partner comes home and is showing you that they bought you a replacement pair of the tennis shoes that you love. And that was one Aww. of the six shoes. And then y'all have two kids. So the two kids got new shoes and, you know, mm. <laughs> new school shoes. Come on. This is the thing. Got to get them light up kicks. Kids aren't walking anywhere right now. <laughs> That's true. No, you're right. That's a great example, though, that you see on the statement, oh, six shoes, what are they doing? And then it turns out, you know, one of them's a gift for you. You're taking care of the kids. They got themselves something they needed. There was a context to the behavior that you did not have until later. Right. And being willing to see it that way. So if you look at the six shoes and your immediate thing is like, I can't believe my partner would buy six shoes. You might look at the six shoes and be like, hmm, that's different. Let's go talk about it rather than walking into that discussion already angry that your partner has bought these six shoes. That's the goodwill. This is different. I don't think my partner is attempting to harm our relationship with the purchase of the shoes. Let's go have a conversation about this. This is the receiving end of positive intent, if that makes sense. Partner has positive intent, but gets it wrong. Doesn't say it in the right way says it in a way that it's confusing to you or even hurts you a little bit. Goodwill is the idea of saying, hey, wait, that didn't come across correctly. I'm not really understanding. And giving them another chance instead of just jumping on them. It's like the behavior you were just describing. It's you see the behavior on the credit card statement. And instead of just jumping all over them, creating a space where they can tell you, oh, this is what's going on. Goodwill is this idea that both partners understand that they are not perfect and they're not going to get it right all the time. And there is going to be a point in time when you screw it up and you hope your partner has goodwill and lets you have a second chance. What do you do if you're having all this goodwill towards your partner, but then, you know, they're taking advantage of that? They're, they're doing these negative behaviors. Should you just maintain your goodwill blindly? No, the idea isn't ever to be blind. So if your partner is doing things that are harmful to you, the expectation is you'd be willing to come and tell them, here's the effect you're having. Hopefully, they're willing to hear the effect that they're having because they want to be in relationship with you. If they don't care, that tells you something and you need to change your behavior. This might not be a person who loves you or cares about you or the right person for you. The emotional succubus. Yeah, and they exist. There are people who will just continue to harm you unless you call them out on it, you know, and they change. And if they don't want to change, let go. The best apology is changed behavior. Yay. Who said that? I don't know. Well, Kim did just now. Oh. That's the quote. One of our biggest challenges in relationships is that we assume we know what the other person was thinking and feeling, what their motivation was. And I will tell you, I am trained to read behind other people. And at best, I'm going to get it right 40% of the time. Well, that's even worse than pure chance. Yep. (laughs) That's absolutely true because my biases will be part of the calculus. 
Uh, okay. And my lack of experiences that the other person has are part of that blind spot. So I am likely to attribute to them things that are familiar to me rather than things that are truly theirs. Hmm. That's why assumptions become so difficult and toxic and why it's so hard to just listen and understand. All right. Well, let's talk about the last attitude on Don's list of necessary attitudes. This one is grace. Yeah. We're going to give this to Dr. Osvito because I don't have he a has lot the most of grace. grace. <laughs> yes. He's, He's very chock graceful. full of grace. So graceful. He's like a ballerina. He is. This is a word. <laughs> this is a word that often gets a lot of reaction, mostly because the word grace is often used in, in theological discussion. In theology, the idea of grace is the freely given unmerited favor and love of God. You didn't do anything for this. It was simply granted to you, right? That's theological grace. In this particular terms, in terms of a relationship with someone that you deeply love, it's the idea of accepting the other person isn't perfect and they're going to mess up and loving them anyway and helping them be better. So think about it this way. If you happen to have a child, you understand this concept kind of innately because you expect your child to mess up, to break a dish, to spill some milk, to do other things, and you accept it as part of the process of learning how to, how to be different in the world, how to be more socially acceptable or more careful with, with things, and you just move along with it. What if you could extend that same grace to your partner, recognizing that your partner will mess up, will forget things? Is this implying that my partner is a toddler? I was going to say, should you have a different kind, not different kind, a different amount of grace for an adult than for a child? With the example of breaking a dish, like that's easy enough, but I would be annoyed and less graceful if my partner breaks a dish like every week or something. Wouldn't you be concerned though? I would be concerned, but I guess part of the reason we have grace for children, right, is that we also assume that they will learn and stop doing the thing that we're having grace for. So that's part of having grace for your partner too, I guess, is that you're helping them become better so that they stop doing the thing that you're having grace for. Or you accept that they are trying a new thing and they're getting better at it and they're not perfect at it yet and probably will never be perfect at it. So ask yourself, where is the point in your life where you said, I no longer have to learn anything, I have it all, and now I'm perfect? You're correct. We're always learning and we do need to offer grace to everyone, uh, you know, even outside of our romantic relationships, offering grace to people who are learning to the people that you don't know their story and they may engage in a behavior that makes you upset, but you don't know what's happening for them. Again, getting cut off in traffic. We've talked about that before. You don't know what's happening in that person's world other than they cut you off in traffic. You can only ever see their behaviors. Very rarely can you see their experience. Mm -hmm. Or their motivations. And yet one other place that's really important to have grace is with yourself knowing that you're not going to get it right all of the time and that you're doing the best that you can each time that you can. The real effort in life is being better today than you were yesterday. Seeking to do things 
just a little bit differently today than you did yesterday as you seek the beauty and the, the expression of the fullness of who you are in the world. That was pretty. I do have a mm. question that fits into this, but might derail us. So at what point do you stop giving grace to somebody who is perpetually harming you? I don't know that there's a number, but there is an intensity. So if the harm feels willful, like they, are, they know that they're going to harm you, but they do it anyway, and you've asked for change and they won't change, and you've asked questions about what's happening for you that you continue this behavior to try and understand it, then it's time to let go. They're the wrong person. And no matter what you do, it's never going to be good enough. So let go. I'm a marital therapist. I've been doing this for 31 years, and I far more enjoy putting marriages back together again and having people, helping people find joy and love with one another again. And time and again, I am met with folks who are so disdainful, so critical, so contemptuous of one another that it's not worth staying in the relationship even one more day. Let go of that. It's toxic for y'all. It's toxic for the kids. It's toxic for the extended family and your friends. Just let it go. All right. Well, coming back to having these attitudes instead of not having them, how do we use them all the time? Do we need to have all five of these going full throttle 24-7? Yeah. The answer to that is no. We're human beings and we can't do anything full throttle 24-7. The important part is when you start to come to a trouble time. So most of our relationships are really kind of neutral. We're getting through the day-to-day stuff. We're cleaning the bathroom, we're cooking the food, we're washing the laundry, we're going to work, we're paying the bills. It's pretty neutral. It's just stuff we got to get done. Occasionally, we have really great times, and it's easy to have these positive attitudes with one another when we're having great times. The time to really bring this out is when you're in a trouble spot with your partner. And here, when you go to talk about that trouble spot, if you can bring these attitudes to that conversation, the conversation is more likely to go well. This is a crucial conversation to pull the title of a book between the two of you because there's a problem and you need to resolve it. To resolve it, you need trust, you need goodwill, you need commitment, all of these things. Those were not the attitudes we listed. They're not oh, attitudes, no. but they are elements of life, right? <laughs> He's yes. starting the whole another episode. We've talked about trust before. We have. And the whole idea is if you're not in a committed relationship, you won't actually have this discussion. I will not have a discussion with a person who cuts me off in traffic. I don't care. I and mean, it's their life going about their business. I will do that with my children or with my siblings or with my wife. That's when you need to bring the attitude. Well, there you have it, folks. The five attitudes that every relationship needs. You don't need them all the time, but they're especially important during times of conflict or tension. Longtime drivers will also notice that a lot of these attitudes play into things like the love languages, the trust equation, and other concepts and techniques we've discussed in previous episodes. Thanks for joining us this week, and until next time, enjoy the drive. Thank you for listening to the Relationship Road Trip. We hope you enjoyed the episode, and we want to know what you think. So write to us at questions at afpsych.com. You can also support the show by rating and reviewing us on iTunes or subscribing with your favorite podcast app. You can find more episodes of the show at relationshiproadtrip.com or wherever you download podcasts. 
The Relationship Road Trip comes out every Wednesday at 7 a.m., so don't forget to tune in next week. The Relationship Road Trip is brought to you by Azevedo Family Psychology, where they are dedicated to helping you create a life worth celebrating. You can learn more about their services at azevedofamilypsychology.com. This podcast is produced by Bear Cave Audio. Bear Cave Audio provides a range of audio services, from original composition to podcast recording and editing. To learn more, go to bearcaveaudio.com or email ben at bearcaveaudio.com. Until we meet again, may the road rise up to meet you. May the wind be always at your back. And may the sun shine warm upon your face. Thank you.